This episode is brought to you by Merrick Pet Care. We have a dog. Her name is Sasha. She's almost four. She's a standard poodle. She's got curly, fluffy, soft black hair, and she's very adorable. And she's a part of our family, and we care a lot about taking good care of her. And that includes feeding her high-quality dog food like Merrick's. Founded in Hereford, Texas, Merrick has been crafting high-quality dog food for over 30 years. Real is Merrick's recipe. They always use deboned meat, fish, or poultry as the number one ingredient. Merrick creates homestyle recipes like Real Texas Beef and Sweet Potato or Grammy's Pot Pie, so you can feel good about what you're feeding your pet. I mean, you know, you come home from being out, and your dog is there to greet you, and, like, that's one of the best things about having a pet, you know? You come home, the dog's happy to see you, and they're hungry. And you want to reciprocate that good feeling they give you. When you walk in the door, you want to give to them in the form of some high-quality food. So check out Merrick online or in your local pet store and look for their new packaging with real ingredients shown on the bag and inside it. Are we in the salad spinner or do we spin the salad spinner? Still a lot of kinks to work out in this format, I think. Yeah, a little bit of logistics to to determine. (laughs) Is it like a (laughs) tilt-a-whirl? I think I like the idea of in the spinner. Absolutely. It sounds more more chaotic and therefore more fun. All right. right. (laughs) This sounds good. This is The Sporkful. It's not for foodies, it's for eaters. I'm Dan Pashman. Each week on our show, we obsess about food to learn more about people. Today, we're bringing you another edition of our rapid-fire roundtable discussion of the latest food news, from significant to silly, surprising to strange. Yes, it's time to crank up The Salad Spinner. Joining me in the spinner are two very special guests. First, right here in studio, we have returning guest Amanda Mull, a staff writer at The Atlantic who covers health and American consumerism. Hey, Amanda. Hi. And joining us from Minneapolis, or to be more precise, St. Paul, we have Doug Mack, a travel and food writer who's the author of The Not Quite States of America and creator of the newsletter Snack Stack, in which he digs into the cultural history of snacks around the world. Hello, Doug. Hello. So I've asked each of you to bring some stories to share, to sort of throw into the salad spinner and spin with us. Then later we're going to do a lightning round, but I promise at the end I won't tell either of you to pack up your knives and go. You ready? Yeah. Yes. All right, Amanda, why don't you get us started? You wrote a story about Bass Pro Shops, the chain retailer that sells fishing and hunting equipment along with outdoor gear. Now, when I read your story about Bass Pro Shops, it actually made me think of grocery stores these days. But before we get to that, just tell us about the Bass Pro Shop you visited for your story. Yes. um, A couple of weeks ago, I was in Memphis for um, a friend's bachelor party. And one of the big things to do in Memphis is to go to a Bass Pro Shop that is housed in a former basketball arena uh, in a pyramid. And it was glorious. Everybody should go to the Pyramid Bass Pro. (laughs) I will second that. It's amazing. Are you, you've been to this one too, Doug? Yeah, about a year ago. It's unlike anything I've experienced in my entire life. It really <laughs> it's is incredible. Bananas. It's a store, just so we're clear, right? It's a store. Well, it's it's a store and so much more than that. Um, in this particular Bass Pro, there is a hotel, there is a bar, there is an outdoor terrace at which uh, on one of the two visits that I did during this trip to Memphis, they had a uh, DJ night. <laughs> they had like a stream running through the store, you said. Yes, it, and it has like... 
a, several huge lake sturgeon in it. They have several live <laughs> crocodiles. They have ducks. Okay, they have right. all kinds of stuff to look at. Um, it is just, it is set up to look sort of like an outdoor wonderland of its own, which is where the sort of like Disney theme park thing right. comes in. But in a way, this is kind of a throwback to retail stores of like when I was a little kid, like it was an event to go to FAO Schwartz in New York City. And, and there were toys, not only to see the toys, but you could play with the toys and there was like things to climb on. It was an outing to go to the store. But so, Amanda, you didn't just wander through the Bass Pro Shops on your bachelor party weekend. You saw a retail trend that you thought was worth writing about. Right. I write a lot about retail and the sort of in-person brick-and-mortar retail story of the past five to ten years, and especially the past couple of years, has been largely one of, like, doom and gloom. Stores are closing, things are downsizing, people want to shop online, things like that. Not all of that is quite true. There's a lot of, like, oversimplification of, like, how people feel about stores. But it is true that a lot of stuff is closed and that stores, in a, in a lot of cases, are just, like, a much drearier experience than, like, when we were kids and there was no online shopping. So I went in the store and, like, the first thing was that it was just absolutely bustling. People were excited to be there. Everybody was walking around with, like, armfuls of stuff. Um, the store was really, like, just beautifully set up. Lots of attention to detail, lots of attention to merchandising. And it was just nice to be in a spot where it felt so lively and felt so much like you could actually buy something there that ended up being fun. And and, and a big part of your sort of takeaway is that the shopping habits have not moved online as fast and as wholeheartedly as people have been predicting for years and years that they would. Right. 80 to 85% of purchases made in America are still made at uh, brick-and-mortar retail stores. There's just a lot of things that don't sell well online, that that people sort of are sick of trying to buy online now that they've had that experience. And I think that retailers are starting to realize that there's still people who want to, like, go out and do things, especially post-pandemic. People want to go outside. Like, life online is, like, not all it's cracked up to be. And I think that uh, retailers are starting to realize that, like, oh, we, we might have, like, swung too hard toward online sales and, like, left some stuff out of, like, an experience that people still, like, fundamentally prefer for most of their purchases. And allowed their stores to become, in a lot of cases, frankly, dilapidated. Yes. I mean, a lot of these big box stores, I went into one just the other day that I won't name, but there were boxes of shipments of supplies, half open, strewn about the store. I mean, like, I was like, are you guys even open? The reason I bring all this up, people are probably at this point like, is this a food podcast? I was curious because I feel like supermarkets are one of the few areas where I haven't seen this decline in the first place. I still love going to the supermarket. Most supermarkets are very nice. And certainly like in the suburbs where I live, like I've seen a lot of money poured into them in recent years to rehab them. They weren't so bad before. And now they're gleaming and beautiful. And so what's the difference, Amanda? Why why wasn't there the same decline with supermarkets? Well, I think there's probably a couple of reasons. I think part of this we have to credit to the very early dot-com bust of Webvan. One of the buzziest early internet commerce platforms um, was something that delivered groceries, and it failed so spectacularly that um, it is still a cautionary tale in sort of VC (laughs) Silicon Valley circles. Grocery businesses looked around and said, okay, people want to buy stuff online, sure, but, like, they seem not to want to buy groceries online that bad. So they didn't have, like, the same internal, like, budgetary push and pull of, like, how much do we invest on our websites? How much do we invest on moving everything into warehouses? And I think that that really benefited supermarkets in that they instead put that money into uh, keeping stores looking nice, into making sure that they're staffed, into expanding sort of prepared foods and deli options, which are super, super popular and, like, a really 
really growing part of the grocery business. And I think that not having that like sort of constant tug of the internet over the past 20 years um, has been really, really good for them. And of course, now we see more sort of like instant grocery delivery startups. A lot of those have failed because again, grocery delivery online, very hard to do. You know, food is just a sensitive thing. People want to see their food. People want to go and pick out their foods for the week and um, be like surprised and delighted by new stuff that they might have not seen before or heard of before. And I think food does really well in that environment. So grocery stores just like missed a lot of the bad trends in retail, (laughs) and it really benefited the in-store experience. Right. Doug, where are you on all this? Are you a big grocery delivery person? I have to go to the store myself. I want to see everything. I want to lightly squeeze the produce. I want to just be able to have that sensation of being with the food while I'm buying it. I also kind of like doing some impulse purchases. Like, I want to be in the store and see the cookies and go like, yeah, I think I want some cookies. What cookies do I want today? Um, I don't want somebody else making that decision at all. I want to be impulsive and go, do I want the Oreos? Do I want the, you know, the homemade chocolate chip cookies from the store? What do I want? I want to ask each of you, Doug, you first. I just made you the CEO of a major national grocery store chain. You already have nice stores, but someone brings Amanda's article to you and says, look what Bass Pro Shops is doing. They're making experiences. Tell me one feature that you would add to your supermarket to enliven and enrich the food shopping experience. I'm going to add more free samples. Like in any category, there's going to be like one free sample at any time. Like orange juice, there are like, what, a thousand varieties of orange juice. At any given time, you can go into the store and sample one kind of orange juice. You know, same is true for for everything. Just more free samples. I like that. Amanda? I think free samples are great. Also, something that I really appreciate about Publix, which is the grocery store that I grew up with, is there was a lot of like demos in stores. So it took the free sample thing one step further and like had little recipe cards that you could take home and buy everything in the recipe. The people who worked those stations were always so nice. The food was always good. It's nice to have a little snack. And then maybe you, you know, pick up everything you need for that recipe because it's all merchandised right there. I think that giving people these like experiential options is a real plus of in-person retail. And who doesn't love food experiences? All right, well, if they ever put the three of us in charge of a store, I think it's going to be really successful. (laughs) In the meantime, let's take another spin of the salad spinner. Doug, you recently wrote a story in your newsletter, Snack Stack, and you broke a big story here. There's this old story about Van Halen and their contract rider, which is the thing that, you know, many artists will have like this thing in their contract, like the venue must provide X, Y, Z, and it often revolves around the food. But Van Halen had a very specific thing in their rider. This was the story that I always heard. What was the story, Doug? Van Halen had a line item in their contract rider, which was, we want a bowl of M&Ms backstage with all of the brown ones pulled out. And this became sort of rock mythology in the 80s. There was an incident at a university in in Pueblo, Colorado, where they got the M&Ms, the caterer didn't take out the brown M&Ms, and the band kind of trashed the joint, at least according to the the people at the venue. And (laughs) so it really does seem like they were just being obnoxious rock and rollers. And then in 1997, David Lee Roth, who had been the lead singer of Van Halen, writes a memoir. And in it, he says, actually, you know what? You guys have it all wrong. We weren't just being, you know, brash, egotistical rock stars with that, trying to, you know, show off you know, our, our, our very fussy demands. 
there was uh, some genius behind it because we were actually testing the venues to make sure that they had read every line item of the contract writer. Van Halen had all these pyrotechnics, they had giant amps, they had all this stuff. And if you get their wiring wrong, if you don't have enough, you know, structural integrity in this stage, whatever, things can go downhill really fast. They can get right? hurt. It could be dangerous. Yeah, hurt. Right. right. And so this is their check to make sure that the venue is reading every single line item. Right. Like if they get the brown M&M's thing right, then they probably won't screw up the fireworks. Exactly. And so that sort of that editing of the original story of like, oh, they're just brash rock stars becomes its own mythology. You know, I found it in all these different like self-help books and business books and magazine articles and all this stuff because we were like, aha, you know, this was actually very clever. So I started to to write a story about contract writers. And of course, I'll have to, you know, have in my opening paragraph something about Van Halen. So I just, you know, went into the newspaper databases to find out some uh, old stories. And within, it was like five minutes, I realized that this whole revision, David Lee Roth's thing, was completely false. Like, it couldn't possibly be true. <laughs> and there are a couple of reasons for that. One is that, you know, their writer had more than 50 pages. This is this long, detailed document. And again, a lot of this is about, you know, wiring and things like that. The caterer and the electrician are two very different people. Um, <laughs> and they're not going over the same pages of this long contract. Like, they're just not. Um, that's not happening. The other thing that kind of was more more damning is that <laughs> this had become a meme by 1980. Like, every single venue knew that Van Halen wanted the brown M&Ms removed. Van Halen's come to town, and we got to get the M&Ms and take out the brown ones. These venues could could take out the brown ones and then go like, hey, Van Halen, like, we read your writer. This could be just a way for the for the venues to sort of like slack off and, and not read the rest of it because they'd already did the famous thing. So there's no way that it would be effective, right? If your test is, we want to make sure that they read every line item, you can't just rely on this thing that is the most famous part of your test to the point that every single person at every single venue knows about it. Right. So h- how did it feel, Doug, to debunk this piece of rock and roll lore? I mean... It's one of those things where it was like, am, am I crazy? Like, am I imagining this? Um, because I had read, <laughs> I'd read this sort of revised version, um, the David Lee Roth version, so many times. Um, but the more I thought about it, I was like, no, this this can't be true. It can't be. It's incredible how much how easily we were all persuaded to believe for years by David Lee Roth that actually Van Halen in the 70s were sort of like detail-oriented business <laughs> geniuses and not right. just fussy rock stars. I know. That, that's the real takeaway is how gullible are we? Yeah, we were just like, oh, okay, that's right. brilliant. Yeah, wow. Yeah, sure. Reliable narrator. Right. right. Makes yeah, sense. Exactly. Right. Right. Uh, Historically. the David Lee Roth masterclass in business <laughs> administration. <laughs> yeah. But thinking about this story, Doug, threw me down a rabbit hole that I've been down a few times before over the years. But, you know, reading all different performers' contract writers is a lot of fun. And I have here in my hand a copy of Taylor Swift's contract writer. This is from 2008. Her contract writer's probably changed and evolved since then. She was 18 or 19 at the time of this. But it's a whole quart of chocolate milk. That's a lot of chocolate milk. I love that she's got a bottle of Welch's grape juice and then salsa, shredded cheddar cheese, and Tostitos. It looks like she's making nachos. Oh, that's nachos. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah she's making nachos. Right. But then Respect. She's also got one pint Ben & Jerry's chocolate chip cookie dough ice cream, one pint Ben & Jerry's chocolate brownie frozen yogurt. So props for Ben & Jerry's. I love Ben & Jerry's. 
this is why I would struggle to make a contract writer is I want to, you want to be very specific because you want to get what you want. On the other hand, if every tour stop I had was serving me the exact same flavor of Ben and Jerry's, I would get tired of it. I, I'm more likely to be like, one pint of Ben and Jerry's, surprise me. But then like, what if it's one you don't like? If it were me, I would go for one, like one pint specific flavor of Ben and Jerry's or whatever, and one pint like local specialty dealer's choice. Um, so that it does get, you know, mixed up a little bit from city to city. You know? Yeah, but you always have old reliable there in case they choose poorly. Right. <laughs> that makes sense. That's a good that's a good strategy. Coming up, Amanda and Doug dish out more food news, and then we turn up the heat for our lightning round. That's after the break. Stick around. And now, a delicious word from our sponsors. In the Pashman household, we're already big fans of Tillamook shredded cheese. In fact, I used it in developing many recipes in my cookbook. And now I'm getting into their ice cream. Tillamook ice cream is made with more cream, so you get smooth and dreamy scoops each time. You may not realize it, but this is why a lot of the store-bought ice cream doesn't taste the same as what you get in, like, in an ice cream parlor. But with Tillamook, they don't skimp on the cream. These people know dairy, okay? Tillamook makes a great, rich vanilla ice cream with real crushed vanilla bean seeds. They have an Oregon strawberry, sweet strawberry ice cream with ripe Oregon strawberry pieces. The one that I really love is the mudslide flavor, smooth chocolate ice cream with a ribbon of rich fudge and chocolatey chips. You want to move the spoon around to get fudgy and chocolatey chips and the ice cream all in the same bite each time, and it's just so, so nice. And like I said, I just trust Tillamook when it comes to dairy. They make over 200 different dairy products, and the brand is farmer-owned and led by dairy experts. Find Tillamook ice cream near you at Tillamook.com. That's T-I-L-L-A-M-O-O-K.com. The weather's warming up. Have you nailed down your summer travel plans yet? I can tell you, we're working on ours and things are booking up, which is why you should be thinking about Norwegian Cruise Line. They have been raising the standards of cruising for more than 55 years. Let me tell you, when you cruise with NCL, you get award-winning specialty restaurants, immersive entertainment, and the most thrilling experiences at sea. Now, look, one of the great things about cruises in general is that you can visit and explore all kinds of different destinations, all with the ease of unpacking your bag just once. But Norwegian Cruise Line, they take cruising to another level and they take food to another level. With no set dining and entertainment times and no formal dress codes, you have the flexibility to design your ideal vacation. They have an incredible variety of truly authentic and fresh dining and bar experiences complemented by exceptional service. Listen to this. There are up to eight complimentary and nine specialty dining options per ship and up to 23 bar and lounge options. Come see why NCL's guest first philosophy means exceptional service and unforgettable memories. Book your next vacation at ncl.com. I enjoy a nice glass of wine, but I don't pretend to be an expert in wine. I usually just want a wine that's high quality, delicious, and not too expensive. And to me, that's Bogle Family Vineyards. And here's the thing about Bogle. This is a third-generation family-owned winery from California that makes exceptional wines for about 10 bucks a bottle. Bogle wines consistently earn Best Buy designations and high ratings from wine enthusiasts. And let me tell you something. The folks at Wine Enthusiast, they drink a lot of wine. They drink a lot of fancy, expensive wine. And yet they still keep giving great ratings to Bogle. And Bogle Vineyards has so many different kinds of wine. Whatever your mood, whatever you're eating, there's a wine for you. they got this great Pinot Grigio that's crisp and fruity, goes well with spicy foods, with fish. They have a classic Chardonnay that's balanced, amazing, with a pork tenderloin or butter chicken. I like to take that Chardonnay and do what Jacques Pepin taught me, a couple of ice cubes in your glass of Bogle. If Jacques Pepin says it's okay, then it's okay. 
And there's the Bogle Pinot Noir, refined and elegant with bright fruit and about as food-friendly as a red wine can be. You're not going to believe it's only $10. Neither will your friends if you tell them. So pick up a few bottles of Bogle wherever you buy your favorite wines. Please drink responsibly. I just got a very wonderful shipment of goodies from the folks at Reese's. And let me tell you something. These people remain the absolute worldwide leaders in bringing together chocolate and peanut butter. Of course, we know that peanut butter cups remain transcendent. But have you tried the Reese's Sticks? They're wafers with peanut butter in between each wafer, all coated in chocolate. I mean, the combination of sweet chocolate and salty peanut butter just brings people joy, and the folks at Reese's do it better than anyone. So shop Reese's Peanut Butter Cups now at a store near you, found wherever candy is sold. Welcome back to The Sporkful. I'm Dan Pashman. In last week's show, I talked with Curtis Chin, a documentary filmmaker who grew up at his family's Chinese restaurant in Detroit. The restaurant served everyone, from the city's mayor, who was a regular, to business executives, to the sex workers who came in later at night from the red light district. Curtis got a real education about his community and his city while bussing tables there. A lot of parents will tell their kids not to talk to strangers, right? My parents actually gave us the exact opposite instruction. They said, talk to strangers. And so anytime my dad met somebody that had an interesting job, he'd like call all six of us to run over and like barrage these people with like questions like, well, what do you do for a living? How did you get your job? You know what I mean? How much money do you make? (laughs) And because of that, you know, I loved meeting people. And so I feel like that is something that I take with me. Curtis's memoir is called Everything I Learned, I Learned in a Chinese Restaurant. It's a great book, and we had a really nice conversation. I hope you'll check it out. That episode's up now. And now let's climb back into the salad spinner with Amanda Mull, staff writer at The Atlantic, and Doug Mack, a travel and food writer and author of The Not Quite States of America. Hello again, Amanda. Hello. And Doug. Hello. Now let's talk a little bit more about some of the stories that you've both been working on recently. Amanda, you wrote about all of the brand collabs that have been happening, especially in the world of fashion and food. It feels like everyone's doing these collabs. Le Creuset and Warner Brothers teamed up for a Harry Potter-themed set of spell-casting spatulas. Barbie did a special Sunday with Cold Stone. Hidden Valley and the ice cream company Van Leeuwen teamed up to make ranch ice cream. Uh, Some brand a while back sent me mustard ice cream. Mm. Um, Why is this happening? Well... I think a lot of it goes back to sort of like the internet attention economy. Advertising is in flux as an industry and how to get consumer attention is sort of uh, up in the air. But a, a relatively cheap way to get some attention and to get attention in a format that consumers perceive as like more reliable and more interesting and they're more willing to interact with than just traditional advertising is what's called earned media. And in order to do that, you um, come up with sort of a story about something novel, about something special, limited edition, or gimmicky in some way that is going to prompt people who write on the internet to write a post about what you're doing and then people on social media talk about it. And collabs are great for this because you can release like sort of an unlimited number of them per year, basically putting two familiar words together and that just sort of prompts people to riff um, on the internet if it's done well. And then it there's a sense of scarcity about it. So people go out and buy. And if it creates all the buzz they want it to create, they basically get a lot of free advertising out of it. But you're a little concerned that maybe these things are, people are getting carried away. Yeah, there's an opportunity to 
do something interesting there. And like brands are willing to put like budget behind it because it is an opportunity for them to get attention in a way that is like organic and and more meaningful to a lot of people who are out there making purchase decisions. But I think that 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 sort of like good idea has then been taken to its logical extreme where it's like, where can we insert ourselves in situations where it's just nonsensical and like tapping into sort of like revulsion or silliness in like a sort of cynical way? And I think that we're to that point in a lot of respects. One that I came across when writing that article that I thought was just like really ridiculous was a Craft Real Mayo X Juicy Couture collab where Juicy Couture made bedazzled <laughs> jumpsuits with like the Craft Mayo branding on them. And this got got written up in so many places all over the place. It's just, it strikes me as so cynical and so, like, past the point of being, like, defensible in a lot of these situations. The The thing that ultimately, like, sort of broke my brain <laughs> and uh, meant that I eventually ended up writing this was Blue Bottle Coffee uh, made a line, a couple sneaker designs with New Balance, and they were just New Balances with the Blue Bottle logo on the back. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, why does this exist? Why Why are there so many blog posts about this? Why are people talking about it? Why do I have to look at it on social media? Why? Why are we all being subjected to this? <laughs> how much was that uh, mayo jacket on secondhand? How much was it selling for? Not much. I, I, I want to look up online. Let, let's see how much. All right, I'm looking at the Juicy Couture <laughs> Times Craft Mayo jackets. These Juicy Couture jackets, it says Mayo Couture, Juicy Couture times Craft Real Mayo. And it, has a, it looks like a terrier holding a craft flag up, but they look really soft. You see how soft they look? Juicy Couture does make really soft velour stuff. I will give them that. Sometimes you do got to hand it to them. Well, it's $46 on here. And I mean, see, they got me, Amanda. I kind of want it. <laughs> I kind of want this jacket. You're like one of the only people alive who would have like a reason to have it, though. Like you host a food podcast about quirky, weird, uh, interesting food stuff. Like you're the person that garment was made for, believe it or not. I guess. Everybody else should abstain. I feel like I'm going to get myself a mayo jacket and I'm going to get some (laughs) blue bottle coffee New Balances and I'm just going to walk around. You need a whole outfit. You need a tie, a hat. (laughs) Yeah. I'll walk around my tub of ranch dressing ice cream. (laughs) <laughs> and, you'll, and you'll be the weirdest type beast ever. <laughs> All right, let's give this salad spinner another whirl. Doug, you recently wrote a story about a food that is a staple in many households. I can't say it's a staple in mine, maybe more of a special occasion food, but not one that I realized had such a riveting backstory. You wrote all about pizza rolls. Yeah, I think this is just a perfect example of how um, even the most mundane thing has an interesting story, you know, if you go looking for a few minutes. And and in this case, the pizza roll story is really a sort of an intersection of different cultural trends in the post-war era, uh, kind of all coming together in this one product, which, you know, I think is almost like a decoder ring for American culture uh, in the 50s and 60s. So the original pizza rolls are created by a guy named Gino Pellucci, who was an entrepreneur, um, Uh, originally from northern Minnesota, born in the 1920s. In the 1940s, he gets a job as a traveling salesman. He's going around the region for a food wholesaler. And this is a time when Chinese food is getting really popular around the country, and he's eating quite a bit of it in his travels. 
And he notices that there's not a lot of it available in like a prepackaged format in a can or a frozen meal kind of thing at the grocery store. He sort of creates that product. He works with his mom. They develop some recipes. And his mom is an immigrant from northern Italy, so she adds her, some of her Italian seasonings to the chow mein uh, and chop suey recipes. And this brand blows up, becomes a big deal nationally. By the 1950s, his company is a hit. So they're selling across the country. There are ads in Life magazine. You know, it's a big national, national brand. So he's got, you know, chop suey, chow mein, frozen egg rolls. And he's looking at what's what's my next product, right? What's What's my next business idea. And he's at the production plant, and he's looking at this machine that makes the egg rolls, and he sees the egg roll wrappers, and he's like, well, we could put anything in there, right? And so he has one of his employees, um, this woman named Beatrice Ojakangas. She starts experimenting with different fillings. He's like, just test different things. Give me whatever you got. She comes up with 50 different ideas. So really, I mean, credit to her for coming up with uh, all these different things. And Right. She, she's the one who did the heavy lifting here. Absolutely, yeah. Beatrice does not get enough credit here. Um, but, you know, she tried cheeseburgers. She tried room and sandwich. Uh, she tried pizza. And that was the one that, that everyone liked the most. So basically, pizza fillings inside an egg roll wrapper. Um, and again... Italian food, frozen pizza, also having a cultural moment during this time. Frozen pizza is just starting to become a thing. So pizza rolls hit the market in 1968, um, and they are a giant hit right away. And, you know, now I think of them as, like, a thing that you throw in the oven real quick to have a quick snack when you're desperate. Um, no shade. Um, but but that, that's, that's how I think of them, yeah. right? Um, but they were originally marketed as something that you would present to your guests when you're entertaining, right? You're having a dinner party. You're going to have this exotic thing. It's an egg roll. Or is it pizza? It's, like, not necessarily elegant, but it's convenient. It's classy. And, you know, I think we've we've lost a lot of that backstory. People don't necessarily know those roots. They're just, you know, shoving these things in their face. Again, no shade. I do it. I love pizza rolls. And then, as you write, Doug, in 1985, Gino sold his company to Pillsbury for $135 million. Pillsbury turned Gino's Pizza Rolls into a brand that's now a household name, Totino's Pizza Rolls. So that is Gino's legacy. And I actually feel like of all the foods in the frozen food aisle, pizza rolls are like my special occasion food. If there's company coming over, we're going to pull out all the stops. I'm going with pizza rolls and pigs in a blanket. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because there is something about the pizza roll that just feels special. It feels glamorous, to me at least. I don't know. Amanda, what's your take on pizza rolls? Well, first of all, they're great. Highly endorsed pizza rolls. (laughs) Um, But second, it's interesting how over the course of history, like the perception of these types of foods sort of goes back and forth between extremes. Mm. There was a period there um, when these were considered like extremely like fancy, high class, impressive things to to eat and to serve. And there's also this period of belief that these things are like safer and better for you because they are they are made industrially, they are made in indoors, they are made in like um, a pristine factory with yes. people wearing hairnets and all that. Right. And then it swung to the opposite extreme of like gross, processed, frozen foods, cheap. cheap. Are you saying you feel like it's swinging back? Well, I think that this pendulum swings back and forth um, for, like, various reasons every, like, 15, 20 years. On TikTok, there is this sort of belief that seems to exist among a lot of people on the Internet that 
it is like somehow unhygienic to prepare food with your bare hands, even if you've washed them. A lot of people on TikTok then started wearing gloves to to handle food in their recipe videos because if you don't, people like get upset about it and, and tell you it's unhygienic. And that sort of suggests to me that like we're sort of once again becoming more interested in like technological interventions in food. So maybe the zeitgeist might veer back towards more industrially produced foods that have been untouched by human hands. Yeah, at least for like a little while. People get sort of curious about these things in waves, and it seems like um, Gen Z is sort of curious about these things right now. I think that also sort of mirroring that trend is kind of um, quick advancements in technology. You know, just there's an app for that. I think that that's sort of part of that mentality is, is also, you know, that like technology is the solution to problems, not the cause of them. Right, right. We go back and forth trend-wise as to whether or not technology is a solution of or cause of problems. Right, right. Yeah. Um, is it possible it's some of both? It's, pro- it's possible it's some of both. <laughs> All right, so let's move on to the lightning round. The salad spinner is about to start spinning faster. Can you take it? Let's go. Don't get dizzy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Here's, here's a story I want to talk about. I want to get both of your takes on. So last year, a group of 20-somethings living in a hacker house, which is one of these sort of like young computer programmer types you know, to save money on rent, they all live 20 people in a house and spend all day looking at computers and typing in ones and zeros, I guess. I don't know. I sound like an old man. But anyway, um, <laughs> these 20 siblings are living in a hacker house. And one of them, this guy uh, was named Meron. Uh, he often cooked steaks for the rest of the people in the house. And they decided that they were going to create a fake steakhouse online called Meron's Steakhouse. And they created a website for it and an address in Google. And they and they put in a bunch of reviews very positive reviews, and and people fell for it. People wanted to get it in so badly, but then the the website and voicemail said there are no reservations for months, which only made people want to get in even more. So a few weeks ago, Merons came to life for one night. They rented out a space. They cooked steak, which is kind of funny, but I'm I'm more interested in like what this says about restaurant culture. Uh, Doug, you first. What does the fact that all this happened tell you about restaurant and food culture? Yeah, I mean, to me, it's kind of the same old story, right? Like, people people want to go where the hype is. And you see that in restaurants. You want to go the, the place that is generating excitement, whatever that may be. So, you know, to me, it's this kind of feels a lot like the same old story of there's excitement around a particular thing. And in this case, the thing was really non-existent, which adds, uh, you know, obviously a layer of humor. You know, it's just human nature to want to do what other people are doing and to be excited about the things that right. are exciting other people. Amanda, thoughts? First, I think it's just really admirable commitment to the bit from, <laughs> <laughs> from these, like, what, essentially kids. They're right. like, you know, um, I, 20, 21-year-olds um, to actually uh, decide to open a steakhouse for one night and, like, um, see it all the way through. I thought that was really fantastic. And they, they went out to other steakhouses to research, and they yeah. asked the servers a bunch of questions, like, tell us how this steakhouse thing works, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> also, they could do it for one night. It's really funny. The only thing there was at first was a uh, location on, on Google Maps that somebody put there as a joke because on their friend. And that is, like, a, the most 20-year-old thing to do. I mean, imaginable, I think. And there's nothing more interesting in the world than something you have no information on (laughs) and that seems, like, hidden from you. Um, And I think that New Yorkers in particular, like, everybody is subject to this, but New Yorkers are so 
caught in a hype cycle for everything. And so the city runs so heavily on this sort of, like, cycle of, like, things you can't have and then maybe you can try to get them that, like, I think that this is probably, like, the perfect spot to just catfish a bunch of people into <laughs> into going to your joke for dinner. Another headline we got to touch on. Cher is launching a gelato company called Cher Lotto. Last time you were on, Amanda, we talked about celebrity preserves, all these celebrity jams and jellies. If Cher wants to launch a gelato company, it really doesn't bother me. I don't care one way or the other. I'm not any more interested in trying the gelato because Cher's name is attached to it, though. And I guess maybe I just sound naive, but I am shocked at what a difference it still makes when you're trying to get anything off the ground if you can attach a celebrity's name to it. You go to any big box store and like half of the products have some C-level celebrity's face on them. And I I guess I'm just surprised that it continues to matter so much to people. Yeah. Well, I think it goes back to that, what we were talking about, about earned media. You know, the food world is so crowded. There are so many new products, so many upstarts, so many people vying for shelf space. And I think that you know, attaching yourself to a celebrity is, like, a way to, like, convince a certain subset of media to write about you. Uh, gives a certain subset of potential buyers to, like, latch on and be like, well, like, share, and this is interesting. I feel like, though, there, there's, there's probably a difference between the products that are just sort of, like, endorsed by a celebrity, but just, like, a random product, and then they slap a picture on them, and the ones where it's just sort of, like, a one-off thing. Like, it, this almost seems like something where, you know, she was like, I, I've always liked ice cream or gelato, excuse me. Um, or, you know, she had this passing idea and someone was like, well, we have the resources to make it work. The other one I think of is apparently Eminem has has a, a storefront in Detroit called Mom's Spaghetti. <laughs> After the line in the song Lose Yourself, he sells like takeout spaghetti. And it's just like a one takeout window. And again, I'm sure that someone was like, wouldn't it be funny if, and then they made it happen in both the, the share ice cream truck and this, you know, M&M spaghetti, those both just kind of feel like like kind of one-off goofs, right? Where they're not necessarily trying to make money. I'm sure they don't object to it, but it's not necessarily, it's like, it, it really is about the novelty and about this person just sort of like having a weird sense of humor or something. I feel like Mom's spaghetti, that's like, that's more like a bit that feeds off of his actual work. To me, like that's fun and clever, I don't know that Cher is doing this because she's so deeply passionate about gelato. Like, does she have any song lyrics about gelato? I don't know. I, I I know pretty much all the words to If I Could Turn Back Time, and I don't think there's a gelato reference in there. Well, there's turning. You have to turn the gelato. <laughs> <laughs> I think that people are sort of like, um, at least a little bit uh, anesthetized to that whole concept, which is why you get more and more of these situations where there's like a real insistence that actually Cher cares deeply about gelato. And she found, apparently, the gelato makers that she's partnered with are from Auckland, New Zealand, and that she was on tour, and she had this, like, religious experience with their gelato and just had to bring it to the United States because she loved it so much. It might be true. Like, Cher might have just, like, really loved this gelato, but also that story is, like, part of the marketing because it gets past the objections of people who are like, she doesn't care. This is just a gambit. Right, right. I, I guess. I don't know. Everything just gets a little bit more extreme as we get used to more and more of these trucks. <laughs> it was strange to me that it took this long for her to find, like, transcendent gelato because, like, Cher has surely been all over Italy. <laughs> right. Yeah. And that, she, the best gelato is in New Zealand? Yeah. I'm I don't skeptical. Know. Well, this, this, 
perversely enough, actually makes me want to try it. Because I'm like, is it better than what I had in Sicily? Let's find out. So they got you. They got me. All right, so Amanda, you go eat some of Cher's gelato. I'm going to get one of these mayo jackets. Great, great. Good luck. Godspeed. (laughs) All right, well, we survived the salad spinner. I hope you're not too dizzy. But that was a ton of fun. Thanks to both of you. Doug Mack is the author of The Not Quite States of America, and his Substack newsletter is Snackstack. That's at snackstack.net. Thank you, Doug. Thanks for having me. And Amanda Mull from The Atlantic. You can follow her on Twitter, or X as the kids call it now, (laughs) at Amanda Mull. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you so much for having me. Next week on the show, I talk with Yuande Kamalafa, recipe developer and cooking writer at the New York Times, about her new cookbook, My Everyday Lagos. It's based on her childhood spent in Nigeria. When I first spoke with Yuande back in 2018, she told us about her struggle navigating the U.S. immigration system and her time living as an undocumented immigrant. She also talked about wanting to write a cookbook about Nigerian food. Now, the book is here, and we have an update on her immigration story. All that is next week. Meanwhile, make sure you check out last week's show with Curtis Chin. His family owned a Chinese restaurant in Detroit for generations. Curtis had to navigate life there in the 80s, when the crack epidemic was at its peak and when anti-Asian violence was on the rise. He also had to figure out how to act around his family while coming to understand that he was gay. That episode's up now. Check it out. This show is produced by me along with senior producer Emma Morgenstern and producer Andres O'Hara. Editing by Nora Ritchie. Our engineer is Jared O'Connell. And our intern is Julia Russo. Music help from Black Label Music. The Sporkful is a production of Stitcher Studios. Our executive producers are Colin Anderson and Nora Ritchie. Until next time, I'm Dan Pashman. And I'm Susie in Seattle, reminding you to eat more, eat better, and eat more better. I won't let my active psoriatic arthritis joint symptoms define me. Emerge as you. Tremphia guselkumab is proven to significantly reduce joint pain, stiffness, and swelling in adults with active psoriatic arthritis. Some patients even reported less fatigue as assessed by survey one week prior. Results may vary. Tremphia is taken by injection six times a year after two starter doses at week zero and four. Serious allergic reactions may occur. Tremphia may increase your risk of infections and lower your ability to fight them. Before treatment, your doctor should check you for infections and tuberculosis. Tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms of an infection including fever, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough. Tell your doctor if you had a vaccine or plan to. Emerge as you. Learn more about Tremphia, including important safety information, at tremphia.com or call 1-877-578-3527. See our ad in Food & Wine magazine. For patients prescribed Tremphia, cost support may be available. Go spread the word. When you get a fresh, hot McCrispy from McDonald's and you can feel the heat coming through the bag, don't try to wait till you get home. Always respect hot chicken. The McCrispy, only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.